0: And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. I'm guessing you've heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. It's a wise saying. It's a good saying. It's a hard saying to actually put into practice. Appearance matters to us. Like, something could be a a good consumer product, but if it's aesthetically not very pleasing, if it's ugly, we have a hard time buying it, don't we? Uh, In 2001, Pontiac came up with this great idea. They were going to make this car that was going to transform everything. They made... A car that they called the Pontiac Aztec. And it is, by objective truth, the ugliest car that any of us have ever seen. Car and Driver, the car magazine, called it a, quote, monstrosity. And about three years later, they discontinued it. No one bought it. Now, Here's the thing about the Pontiac Aztec. It could have been a great car. Its engine could have been great. It could have driven great. And I apologize if you owned one. (laughs) But it didn't matter because it was ugly. Real ugly. Don't judge a book by its cover. Well, that's hard because appearance matters to us. I mean, you read all the studies that I read sometimes. Uh, All the studies that... As you're going into an interview and you sit down for an interview, what you look like, your, your appearance, what you dress, if you're, you know, don't tuck in your shirt, all those sorts of things matter for you securing that job. Uh, studies show that when uh, college students are looking for colleges, old, gothic, build, concrete buildings, those sell. Like Hogwarts sells. But, you know, concrete, small, square buildings, not so much. Appearance matters to us. And so we say things like, don't judge a book by its cover. But we sure do it a lot, don't we? This winter and spring, we are studying a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. He planted this church. And evidently some men, some leaders in this church were beginning to attack Paul. And their attack came in many forms, and one of them was, Paul, you don't have the right appearance. They were focused on the externals. They were judging a book by its cover. But we know deep down that you can get burned if you judge a book by its cover. And you can get burned if you judge a church by its cover. If you just look at all the externals, all the flashing, all the shimmer and shine of a church, sometimes you miss the reality of what's really going on inside. So in the few minutes I have with you, I want to seek to convince you in 2 Corinthians why, as it relates to the church, you should not judge a book by its cover. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We'll go to verse 11. such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the Ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of Condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come um, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more with will what is permanent have glory. Go back up to verse 1. You see this rhetorical question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves? Paul was asked to commend himself, to, to give reason for why the church in Corinth should listen to him. Paul is being attacked. And so they say, Paul... You're going to need to defend yourselves. But Paul's kind of stuck, and if you've ever been in this situation, you know. If Paul does defend himself, it's going to look like he's being proud and self-serving. But if he doesn't defend himself, well, silence wins the day, and silence can sometimes be seen as tacit approval. So, look proud, or look like he's approving of these leaders. Paul's a bit stuck. And so, he's sort of in this rhetorical fury of questions, he's saying, now, Am I needing to commend myself? And before we see how Paul commends himself, just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of this church. They're sort of stuck. Paul's been gone for a long time. And now some men have risen up in Corinth, who Paul later in chapter 11, verse 5, calls in a sort of mocking way, super apostles. They've got all the flash. They've got all the degrees. They've got all the right appearance. And they look wise. They sound, at times, wise. And so if you're the church in Corinth, you're wondering, should we listen to these guys or should we listen to Paul? The church of Corinth is sort of in the middle. So what do you do to adjudicate when your kids come to you and one tells you one story and another tells another story? How do you adjudicate? You always look for another Kind of recommendation. You look for a higher power. You, you look for something else to figure out right from wrong. You look for an external. And so they look for letters of recommendation, which were very common in this day. And evidently, these super apostles, they had their letter of recommendation. Someone put a stamp of approval on them that was important. They had the right degree the right appearance, the right letter, they had all the right stuff to commend themselves to the Corinthians as to why they should listen to these, quote, super apostles. They had their letters. They had important people backing them. They had all the right stuff, the right resume, the right paperwork to commend themselves to the church in Corinth. And they're like, listen to us. Don't listen to Paul. So what are the Corinthians going to do? And what is Paul going to do? Well, he says, I am going to commend myself to you. And I do have a letter, but it's not like their letter. It's something far greater. Verse 2, he says, I've got a letter and you're it. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So Paul doesn't take the bait at all, does he? he? He doesn't walk around with this letter, say, look, Peter gave me this letter. to ching game over, I win. He doesn't play that game. He doesn't flaunt a letter around. He says, you're my letter. He doesn't focus on the external. In many ways, he focuses on the internal. And says, look, there was no church in Corinth a while ago. I came and I preached the gospel in the Vegas of its day, and a men and women turned from their sin, turned towards Christ, and assembled, and now there's a church. Look at yourself. How do you explain that? You're my letter. Your very existence is my letter. And how does this make, how do, how do you sort of make sense of this? Is it because Paul is great in his his speeches were great verse 3 tells us no it wasn't really Paul's might verse 3 Christ did this in verse 3 if you've been around church you know these old testament texts that Paul alludes to he alludes to Ezekiel and Jeremiah both references in the old testament to the promise of the new covenant that would come when god would pour out his spirit on his people and renew people's lives internally and that promise, Paul's saying, has and is being fulfilled in the church in Corinth. New life is bursting out of the hearts of men and women in the church of Corinth. And he's like, you're my proof. The internal work of God's spirit in the hearts and minds of the church in Corinth is Paul's letter of recommendation. The super apostles, they don't have that. They might have some outward manifestations of resume and professional oratory skills, but they don't have that. Paul says, you're my living letter. And I think we have living letters. I wonder if you have living letters as well. Letters in which you've poured yourself into people's life and you see them blossoming. And as you stare at them and look at them and watch them, you're like, you're my proof the internal work of the Spirit working in someone's life. Just the other day, I was at a birthday party in the South Hill Mall, one of those jump house things, and uh, my kids were playing, and I looked across the room, and I saw someone that I had not seen for 20 years. I saw a friend that I grew up with. I'd known since I was, I think, in second grade. And I I grew up, and I didn't have any Christian friends until I went to college. And this friend was the first friend out of, like, my large group of friends. He was the first friend that, like, came to Christ, the first Christian. And so we became really close because it was, like, us against the world. And so we did life together. When we were in college, we tutored together. We had long conversations together. We read the Bible together. We prayed together. We knit our hearts together. And so I saw him, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. And so I walked over, and we, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, da, da, da. Like, I can't believe I'm seeing you. I haven't seen you in 20 years. And then finally, I like bluntly asked, 30 seconds into our conversation, I just said, are you still following Jesus? I don't know why I said it. I just wanted to know. And just like with a smile on his face, he's like, oh yeah, I am. I totally am. And the gladness in that moment, he is a living letter of God's eternal work, eternal and internal work in a man's heart. Do you have those letters? Paul does. We should. Those letters of God's Spirit working in the hearts and minds of people, bursting with newness of life. He says, that's my letter of recommendation. You focus on all these externals. I'm going to focus on God's Spirit being applied to the hearts of men and women. Paul goes on. And says, and I'm not going to rest my case there. Because you are still focusing on all these external things. And your confidence is in all of your skills and your aptitude and your IQ. I'm going to tell you about a better place to put your confidence. And that's what he goes to in verses 4 through 6. Look, look at it again. I'm going to read it one more time. Verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul begins to talk about confidence and where we should put our confidence, where our confidence ought to reside. Now, confidence is a tricky thing because all of us have confidence in some things and we lack confidence in other things. Like I am really confident that I can make a really good bowl of cereal. I've got confidence. I've got experience. I know how to do it, right? But I lack confidence in picking out an outfit every morning. I found out that I might actually be colorblind. I notoriously am bad at picking out outfits. My wife does it for me. So we, this is the thing about confidence, right? There are things we feel confident. There are things that we lack confidence in. There are things in which we fake it till we make it. There are things in which we struggle with imposter syndrome, but then there's other things that we're just like, intuitively, I feel confident, I can do this, and we just go ahead and attack it. But in all these things, when we have or are confident in something, it's because we've either been affirmed, oh, you're really good at that, or we've got some skill, or we've got experience, or we have education. Something external is telling us we should be confident in something. And we've all seen people who are confident in things they should not be confident in. But confidence always comes from external realities. And these super apostles, they seem to have the outward goods that made them really confident. And if you've ever been in a room in which someone whose confidence and their charisma just walks into a room and just takes it over, if you've ever seen this, those people are really impressive. They just walk in and just suck all the air out of the room. They stand in the front. They're funny. They're gregarious. They're really impressive. They've got all the right stuff. And so it seems like, well, these super apostles, their confidence came from all these external realities. And yet Paul says, I'm not going to play that game either. Paul says, I'm going to tell you where my confidence comes from, and it doesn't come from skill, it doesn't come from knowledge, it doesn't come from my IQ or these letter of recommendations. Paul roots his confidence somewhere else, and he is not the first one to do it. I mean, the Bible is filled with testimonies of men and women who root their confidence not in their skill, might, wisdom, or riches. Noah, we'll start there. He built an ark. It was pretty odd, and he did it, And the question that we should ask is, where did that confidence come day after day to grab his hammer and nails and build this ark day after day? Where does that confidence come from? Abraham, he picks up everything and leaves, and he doesn't even know where he's going. Where in the world does that confidence come from? Moses stands before the most powerful man in the entire world. Joseph said no to some sexual advances and gets put in jail. Where in the world does his confidence come from? Joshua marches around Jericho with a trumpet as a weapon. Esther is told, do not go see the king right now or you're going to die. And she does it anyway. David fights Goliath. Ruth, goodness. Samson, I mean, we could just go on and on and on. That's to say nothing of Daniel, his friends, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, all of the prophets who God called and said, this is my message. Oh, and no one's going to listen to you and no one's going to like your message. And they confidently spoke God's word to God's people when they didn't even want to hear it. Where does their confidence come from? Was it skill? Was it experience? I don't think so. Moses stuttered. Ruth was a nobody. David was small. Esther was an outsider. Gideon was Frightful. We could go on and on and on. These these men, these women, they weren't very impressive. They didn't exude confidence. How do you explain how they did the things that they did? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? He says his confidence is rooted somewhere else. Not in his skill, not in his might. Verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. His confidence, Paul's confidence, like Moses, like Elijah, like Hannah, like so many, they put their confidence in God, and that's what was motivating them to do the very things that they did. God told Noah to build the ark. God told Moses to go before Pharaoh. God told Jeremiah to what to preach, when to preach, how to preach. So often we think of our confidence as, well, I've got a lot of money, or I've got a lot of skill, or I've got a lot of expertise, or I've got a lot of experience, and so I root my confidence in those external realities. But not Paul. His confidence, it flowed from God. He says his sufficiency, his adequacy, The reason that he could preach the gospel and see God do amazing things wasn't because he had figured it all out in that sense. It was that he just kept teaching God's word and seeing God do it. He rooted his confidence in God. Who, verse 6, made him a minister of the new covenant. That's his confidence. All of us have confidence that waxes and wanes. I think especially as it relates to to ministry, especially as it relates to talking and preaching and speaking the gospel to our kids and our youth. I mean, are you confident in your ability to to lead someone to Christ? Are you confident in your ability to, to, to build a church? Are you confident in your reality of catechizing your children and discipling the youth and seeing your neighbors come to Christ? Are you adequate for these things? Are you confident that you can accomplish all the amazing things that God is calling us to do in the New Testament? And I would say, I hope we don't put our confidence in our skill, our might, our wealth, our knowledge. Instead, we put it in God. We teach, we preach, we disciple, not because we've figured it all out, not because our logical syllogisms are foolproof, not because we have every answer to every question that people have, but we say, We're going to continue to preach the gospel, teach the gospel, and put it before men and women because our confidence comes from God. Our confidence is in God and his power, especially because it's his message that brings life. And it's a really, really good message, and that's what Paul turns to in verses 7 through 11. So look look at verse 7. Verse 7 through 11 is interesting, but basically it's one point that Paul makes in three different ways. He, he, He uses kind of a common comparison from the smaller to the bigger, from the lesser to the greater. And he's contrasting two realities, the old covenant law through Moses and the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And he's saying the old covenant law, lesser, the new covenant in Christ, greater. The old covenant that came through Moses came with a little bit of glory. The new covenant that comes through Jesus comes with a lot of glory. Let me just kind of go through this. I think you're going to see it. Verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letter of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, smaller, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory, greater. That's the first comparison of three. So Moses, if you might remember in Exodus, he, 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 he sees God's glory and his, his face radiates glory. And so he had to veil his face. But as glorious as Moses' ministry was, the ministry of the Spirit and the new covenant, even greater glory. On the second comparison, verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, smaller, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it, greater. The glory of the new covenant outshines the glory of the old covenant. And then, verse 11, the last comparison. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, smaller, much more will will what is permanently glorious, greater. Notice, Paul does not say that the Old Covenant law through Moses wasn't glorious. He over and over again says there is glory in the Old Covenant. But the New Covenant is even more glorious. The New Covenant, when it appeared, brings more glory. It, like, deglorifies the Old Glory. It upshines the Old Covenant glory. So, what was the glory that the Old Covenant law gave? Well, there's at least two ways in which the Old Covenant is glorious. One, it tells you that God is really big, and that God is really glorious, and that God is majestic. He is the creator. And that's a good thing. It tells us something of the magnitude and majesty of God Himself. And it also points out what is good from bad. The the Old Testament law came and, and it says this is good, this is bad, this is evil, this is not evil and thereby it actually points out our need for, well, God. It points out our sin. It points out and tells us that there's something wrong with us, that we are broken, that we sin, that we are unclean, and that we need something external, something outside of ourselves to make us clean, to pardon us, forgive us, and to make us one with the magnificent God. That's the glory of the old covenant law. It points out our sin. And therefore, that's why Paul uses the language of it condemns. But really, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, and I'm using those as kind of synonyms, it can't do much more than those two realities. It's a good thing, it's a glorious thing, but it can't do the very thing that we want it to do, which is to pardon us, to forgive us, to bring us to God in full redemption. It was glorious, but all it can do is point out our sin and the magnitude and majesty of God. It can't actually redeem us and forgive us. After all, the old covenant, as Paul says, it was just the prep covenant. The new covenant is its fulfillment. The old covenant prepared the way. It asks really good questions. It probes the heart and makes us ready for and It's the preparatory work for Jesus' work in the new covenant. It's glorious, but there is a greater glory, and that greater glory is Jesus Christ. And he came, and the new covenant was inaugurated when Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. And Paul is saying that glory is greater because that is the glory by which you can be saved. The new covenant is the means by which a man and woman can find redemption pardon, and ultimate renewal. And evidently, these teachers, it seemed, they were placing Jesus sort of in the Old Covenant instead of thinking that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And Paul is saying that since God has made this new covenant, we shouldn't go back to the Old Covenant. We shouldn't be in bondage to the Old Covenant. These teachers... They were just preaching bad news. As verse 6 says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Maybe think of it this way. The Old Covenant is like a couple that just gets engaged. That's Getting engaged It's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. You might remember if you're married, the day in which you got down on one knee, and you had a ring, and you asked for them to get married, and it was really glorious. Then you had a party and celebration, and it was fun. You got to pick out... Silverware and all this kind of stuff. Engagement's great; it's fantastic, it's glorious, it does good things. But if you're engaged, you also know it also is a little bit annoying. It's like relational purgatory. And so I remember when I was engaged, I spent a lot of gas miles, like driving from my apartment to my fiance's and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Right? Like I don't get tax breaks financially. Like there's all these. Unknowing things about being engaged. It's preparatory work. And then you get married and you realize that marriage outshines engagement. There are perks to being married, there's glorious gifts about being married. Why would a married man or a married woman ever want to go back to engagement? It doesn't make any sense. That's weird. That's stupid. And that's Paul's point. The new covenant is here. Why in the world do you want to go back to the old covenant? That doesn't make any sense. That's like a married man wanting to go back to his engagement. Stupid. That's how the gospel is so much more glorious. That's why the new covenant is so much more glorious than the old. It outshines it because it's the fulfillment of it. The ministry of the new covenant that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again to ransom and redeem a people for himself, has come. Paul, he ain't going back. Now the gospel might not look great. It might look like it did to these super apostles, like a Pontiac Aztec. And I think men and women will always come and say, I got the secret sauce. I, like, if you just follow these rules, then Jesus will really like you. And, and yet, Paul says, I'm not going to play that game as well. I'm not going to play the letter of recommendation game. I'm not going to play the confidence game. And I'm not going to play the, oh, we know the Bible and the gospel and the new covenant better than you. He says, I'm just going to preach this message, the glory of the new covenant and how it outshines as It fulfilled the old covenant and he keeps putting it before people and saying, this is how you can be forgiven. This is how you can be saved. This is how you can be renewed. This is how you can be redeemed. This is how you can have a new heart to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is how you can have God now and forevermore. And all this happens. All this is possible because of this greater glory that came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, do, do, do you remember... Jesus' followers come to Jesus and they go, We want to see your glory like Moses. We want to see it. And they're assuming that's going to be like Jesus dominating his enemies, sitting on his throne, destroying Rome, victory, usher in the new kingdom. We want to see your glory, Jesus. Come on, let's do this. And he goes, Oh, you want to see my glory? I'm going to show it to you. It's going to be real, real soon when I'm lifted up on a cross and you're going to see my glory as I die on a wooden cross and denim resurrected to newness of life. That's the greatness of this glory. It's the greatness of the gospel. Sometimes we look for all these externals. We get caught up in all the externals of a church, let's say. We look at appearance. We're sort of like the Pontiac Aztec of life. To the world, they look at us and they're like, it's not that cool, not that beautiful. Maybe they even think of us like we're a monstrosity. But it's not true. Because one thing I know is this Pontiac discontinued the Aztec. God will never discontinue the church, it will go on in victory. Paul wasn't very impressive but he had an impressive message because of an impressive God who impressively saved by impressing on men and women's hearts his spirit. Don't judge a book by its cover. Lord, we are so grateful for the magnitude of your grace that has befallen many of us. And we pray, Lord, that you would magnify in all of our lives and hearts the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again and will come again. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to root our confidence as we are ministers in the new covenant, that we would root our confidence not in might or power or wisdom or riches, but that we would put our confidence in you. And we pray that that would motivate us to love greater, to sacrifice deeper, and to persevere with greater joy. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.